you know, COVID-19 uh, is, is really the, the new stage of what you might call a battle of narratives between authoritarian countries and democracies. Dear friends, uh, welcome to another edition of the Forum 2000 online chat, where we discuss the future of freedom and democracy in these challenging times. Uh, the COVID pandemic uh, is a, an important health crisis, but there is a risk that this uh, health crisis might turn into a more wide and serious uh, political crisis and uh, perhaps end in undermining uh, global democracy. Uh, a group of uh, leading international NGOs and uh, important personalities have uh, recently came up with a statement concerned with this development called a call to defend democracy. To discuss this, uh, it is a pleasure to welcome today uh, Karl Gershman, President of the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, Karl, it's a great honor to have you with us. Welcome to the uh, Forum 2000 show. Great to be with you. So, uh, Carl, both of our organizations are part of this initiative, uh, both uh, Forum 2000 and NED, as well as a number of others. Uh, in its two opening sentences, uh, the call that you yourself drafted uh, says, uh, the COVID-19 uh, threatens more than the lives and the livelihoods of people throughout the world. It is also a political crisis that threatens the future of liberal democracy. Uh, so can you please explain a little bit the nature of this concern? Thank you, Jakub. It's great to be with you. And uh, we saw from the very beginning of the COVID crisis that authoritarian governments are using it to tighten their controls. Um, and, and it's not just in places like uh, China, but also in Azerbaijan and other countries like that. That's what happens when you have a crisis. But in many other countries, uh, what you might call hybrid countries, even in democratic countries, governments are passing emergency laws which um, restrict rights, but you know, they're not, they have no time frame. Uh, and uh, Hungary is a very good example of this where uh, they passed an emergency law that really tightens and restricts freedoms. And the democracies, um, you know, are really, they, they, they're so concerned about how to deal with the crisis, that, uh, the health crisis, which of course is central. Uh, that they haven't really understood that there's a political crisis going on as well, and that uh, you know COVID nineteen is the kind of new political battleground, new political battleground uh, in their fight to stigmatize democracy as feeble and incapable of dealing with a major crisis like this. That you know the argument is you need authoritarian uh, control in order to have the proper kinds of uh, responses, social distancing and so forth, uh, and lockdowns. Uh, and, the, and I think what we're trying to do with this is to uh, raise the idea that, you know, COVID-19 uh, is, is really the, the new stage of what you might call a battle of narratives between authoritarian countries and democracies. And we have to make the case for democracy and why democracy with the rule of law, with a free media, 
with an active civil society, uh, with a government that is responsive to the people, uh, is a much more effective way of dealing with this crisis. And of course, many uh, democratic countries, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, New Zealand, uh, Georgia has done very well, Germany, uh, you know, have, have handled this much more effectively uh, than dictatorships. You don't even really know in many dictatorial countries how bad it's been because you can't trust the information. And there is no trust in authoritarian countries. And that's one of the reasons why it's very difficult to get the society engaged in responding effectively to it. So we have to make the case for democracy. And this is what the statement does uh, as not only an ideal that we have, but also as the most effective system for dealing with a crisis of this complexity uh, and this magnitude. And I think the statement makes a strong case for that. And, uh, you know, but so far, the, the people who are signing it are not only, uh, you know, very prestigious, but they're also signing it with enthusiasm. At least, you know, we're sort of raising a banner. Uh, and, and the question is going to be not just to uh, have a statement, but also then to, to de determine how to move forward uh, in shaping the understanding of this and shaping the discussion that's taking place. One of the things I'm happy about in this initiative is that the various groups that work on democracy internationally, and that includes the NED and its institutes like NDI and IRI, our party institutes, um, but also Freedom House and Forum 2000 and the European Endowment for Democracy, an international idea which is coordinating this, uh, about 20 of these institutions have come together uh, on this initiative. Uh, and I think that's the first time that's happened, which is, I think, a good thing. And now, But now we have to learn, uh, figure out how to carry it forward politically. Speaking about the battle of narratives, uh, we have uh, the, let's say, liberal democratic narrative, which uh, over the past decades has led uh, the, the democratic world to unprecedented levels of, of freedom and prosperity. Uh, but we also have, on the other hand, the, the one that you mentioned, the, the rising authoritarian uh, counter-narrative, which is represented by China, Russia, and, and others. And we have this, uh, taking, uh, this battle taking place. How do you think the, the democracies can make sure to be, to be successful in this battle? What, what do democracies need to do to, to win this battle? Well, look, we have to... Uh, we have to believe in who we are. We have to believe in the values we have. And, and there's been a great deal of demoralization um, uh, in, among many of the democracies in the past decades, you know, with the rise of populism, kind of anti-system movements. Um, and part of this is a response to globalization. Um, a lot of people have been left out of uh, the economic growth of globalization. There's increasing polarization in societies, especially between people who are more educated and people who are less educated and so forth. The democracies are right now going through a real crisis. And I think the COVID, uh, pan the pandemic um, sharpens that crisis. Uh, so we have to really recover our own sense of belief in ourselves and in the values that we share and, the, and why democracy is important. Um, and here, I think, 
it is more China than Russia that poses the most serious ideological challenge. Um, you know, Russia today is in its own very, very deep crisis. Putin has withdrawn. Uh, his leadership is in real crisis. China is the largest country in the world, the second largest economy. And it really does today pose the most serious challenge to democratic, uh, to democratic values. Um, and it, this is a very, very difficult thing to understand as to what the nature of this challenge is. Um, because, uh, you know, people think, oh, it, we're, we're on the verge of a new Cold War with China. Um, but that's not the nature of the problem. Uh, the, the real nature of the problem, and China understands this perfectly, is uh, it's a competition over values. Uh, China really sees a world order, which is what we've had uh, for the past, certainly since the end of the Cold War, and, and in, in the West, uh, before the end of the Cold War, we've had a world order which is, you might say, which is dominated by uh, norms and values that are consistent with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In other words, universal values. And I think what people really don't understand is that China sees uh, these values as a threat to its very survival because its system is based upon a totalitarian idea, state control. Uh, and it sees human rights as a source of uh, instability uh, leading to what it calls all the time, you know, color, color revolutions and so forth. Uh, and it sees uh, uh, these norms uh, which are characteristic and dominant in the world today of the, of the world order as intrinsically antagonistic uh, to uh, a political system that is controlled by uh, the Communist Party. Uh, and so it, it has to, so we're involved in a, a battle of values and norms. It's not a Cold War, a, a, a competition between two sides. They want, actually they do want an integrated world order, but an integrated world order that is based not on universal values, uh, which have to do with freedom and democracy, but where those values are really um, uh, swept off the table and you have the, you know, the primary value of state sovereignty, uh, you know, dominating the world order. You know, it's actually um, important to note that when Xi Jinping uh, came into power back in 2000, 2012 and 2013, the first thing he did, the first thing he did was order the party to prepare a document, which then became called document number nine. It was a, a secret document that was later leaked to, uh, to, the, to the media. And so it became known. Uh, but document number nine called for the intensification of the struggle against universal values, against free media, against the constitutional order, against civil society. In other words, he was saying at that time, and maybe part of it was the fact that he had internal uh, party battles that he was fighting against people who wanted China to be more open to the world, and he was sort of saying no, and he was reimposing a kind of centralized Maoist control. 
but he was basically making the point that we have to fight these values. And that's where we are today, where they represent not a kind of in a Cold War situation, uh, a totalitarian state against a democratic world, but no, they have the feeling that they can uh, take over and dominate the world order. Uh, and also in the process, working through the UN system, uh, really change the norms and the values according to which we operate um, and to so that people will not speak about human rights and democracy anymore so i guess in the, the, the short long and the short of it is we have to realize that these values are under threat uh, and we have to support these values and i would maybe the last point i would make is support these values especially especially in places like China, where you have, this is not the way, you know, Asia versus the West. Uh, there are people in China and we know them very well, Liu Xiaobo, uh, and people like Liu Xiaobo, who was the Nobel laureate who they, they imprisoned, who, who support these values. And, and the Charter 08 petition that was based on Charter 77 um, in Czechoslovakia uh, and Havel, did so much to support Liu Xiaobo, and he had the right conception that we have to support freedom for the Chinese people. That means today, the struggle in Hong Kong, um, but there are people throughout China who are being repressed right now, but we hear their voices, um, and we publish their works, and we circulate what they're saying, um, and that has to be one of the central things we do. The, the best allies, that we, as by we I mean people who believe in freedom and democracy, the best allies we have in this struggle are people at the grassroots in non-democratic societies who are fighting for freedom. Yeah, uh, this fight that you, you you're speaking uh, about, in a sense, is being led by China right now during the during the pandemic. I mean, China is is promoting the way how it dealt with the with the COVID. Uh, crisis in in its own country, it uh, is uh, shipping aid or selling aid around the world, and it's being successful to a certain degree with it. Uh, playing a little bit of a devil's advocate, the 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 statement that we are discussing today itself says, democracy does not guarantee competent leadership, and indeed uh, has not hasn't the pandemic shown that some authoritarian regimes, such as China, for example, may be quite effective and have sort of been more effective than some democracies in dealing with the crisis. Well, yes. And I, you know, the, the statement makes very, very clear that democracy does not provide an automatic solution to these problems. The issue comes down to democracy and governance, democratic governance, which is critical. And sometimes you can have democracies that perform well, and sometimes you can have democracies that perform very badly. And when I was speaking before about the rise of anti-system movements and polarization and inequality and so forth, uh, these are, this is a crisis of democracy. And so democracy has to perform well. It has to, we have to be prepared for uh, better than we were for crises like the pandemic. Uh, I think in the end, democracy, you know, democracies can have, have a much greater capacity to govern well uh, than dictatorships where power corrupts, as, as we know. 
but the, but they they have to uh, they have to get their own act together. Uh, and as we say in the statement, the greatest strength of democracy is the capacity for self-correction. We have to learn from our mistakes. We have to plan for the future. We have to be able to, uh, uh, you know, to deal with social and economic and political problems in a very effective and capable way. And you know, there you, you sometimes do have enlightened dictators. Um, and uh, you know, Sam Huntington dealt with this when he gave a talk. You know, where he compared uh, Lee Dung Wei in Taiwan to uh, Lee Kuan Yew in in Singapore. These two Lees, where one of them was, you know, you might call an enlightened dictator. Uh, this was in the 1990s. But you know, there may be an enlightened dictator every once in a while. But the system basically leads to corruption because there are no checks and balances, there's no free media, there's no independent judiciary, there are no free elections to vote the rascals out. Um, and so, but democracy still, we, we have to make it work. And that then requires doing exactly what we're doing now, building citizen movements that can, that can demand uh, effective governance uh, and accountability. And, uh, you know, I think that can be done. And I think also the jury is out on China. Uh, you know, it's such a closed system, even with, you know, it's not like it was maybe during the dark days of Mao, but it's still a very closed system. And you can't believe the information that's coming out of that. And what we do know, and, and what the statement did say, is that, you know, when the virus started in Wuhan, and it was probably in November of last year, it took more than two months before China finally um, had, you know, is, you know, had their lockdown. And they allowed hundreds of thousands of people from Wuhan to travel. And there are studies that have been done that if they had, if they had tried to control this problem three weeks earlier than they did, it would have possibly reduced the number of deaths around the world by 95%. There are studies done to have shown that. Uh, and what they did and what we know was that they silenced people who were trying to raise the alarm, like Li Wenliang, uh, who died on February the 7th, who was the doctor in Wuhan who, who spoke about this. And he was forced to sign a confession and he was told to shut up because he was, you know, threatening the credibility of the state. You probably have seen this HBO uh, series on Chernobyl. But if the first episode of that Chernobyl series is exactly like what happened in China. You cannot challenge the prestige of the state. Uh, you are undermining uh, the, you know, the power and the authority of, of our system. And that's the nature of a, um, of, of a dictatorial system. And, and it's true that it's no accident, even though, yes, this can break out in a democracy. Um, but the, the way they closed down in the beginning and let it get so much worse uh, really is related to this argument about democracy. And, you know, and, the, and obviously they haven't solved the problem in China as well. They're trying to organize a, you know, a campaign to defend, you know, China's competence and so forth. But we're a long way from the end of that. And I also think that there has to be an international inquiry different from the, what the WHO is going to do, that looks at this question of how this virus got started. Um, because, you know, there's no question 
that, you know, everyone knows it started in Wuhan. And, you know, it's no accident that in Wuhan they had these two labs that were not only experimenting on uh, uh, coronavirus, but, you know, where they had lax safety precautions. The head of the Chinese Ministry of Health just recently, when he was responding to Pompeo, who was saying that, you know, China was engaged in a cover-up by destroying the samples, he said, we were not engaged in a cover-up. We, these labs were not safe. We had to transfer, we either had to destroy the samples or transfer them to a professional institution. He was basically saying that the labs weren't safe. And this is, you know, the head of the Chinese health authority. He thought he was responding to Papeo, but in, on, the, on the issue of cover-up, he said we had a health reason for destroying the samples or transferring them. Um, when, in, in fact, he was admitting that it probably, you know, came out of these labs, which had uh, safety uh, uh, inadequacies. And, 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 you know, if you had a problem like that in a democratic society, because, you know, people from our State Department went to these labs in the beginning of 2018, more than two years ago, and they wrote cables saying that there are, these are unsafe. Uh, there, and now, if you had an open society with a free media, and there was an issue uh, of unsafe uh, conditions in laboratories experimenting on uh, uh, potential uh, a virus that could lead to a pandemic. Can you, you don't think that story would become big news and that there would be accountability and that th- this problem would be addressed? I mean, there's a direct connection between the absence of transparency, the absence of checks and balances, accountability, free media, and the fact that this virus developed. In conclusion, um, uh, if we were to give uh, sort of a recipe or recommendation to uh, international community, especially the, the key players on the democratic side of the international community, the governments in, in Washington, governments in, in Europe, in the EU, the G7 governments, what would be your recommendation, what to do? Well, you know, there's no one thing to be done. And obviously people are, um, you know, rightly concerned about containing the virus now and and then uh, preparing ourselves for any future viruses. And these are things that have to be done. And these are issues related to governance. And I think they're very, very central. But we also have to recognize that we are in this battle of narratives, that we that there is a political issue that is, that is here, that China does represent not a, a kind of a Cold War rival, but a country that is trying to change the international order in which we live and to use its wealth basically to, uh, to buy off and intimidate uh, others to change the norms within the international system. And we, we have to begin to fight for uh, free, uh, fundamental rights and to recognize that these fundamental rights are necessary to deal with the governance issues that we have and the health issues that we have. Uh, so that's a larger uh, struggle, and in that, I would I would say, we have to remember that uh, you know the people 
in China and in other dictatorial countries are allies in this struggle and they need support. Today, that obviously, um, uh, you know, is, is very centrally, the central struggle is taking place in Hong Kong, uh, where China is, is uh, this, you know, basically um, going back on the, the commitment to a, um, uh, the agreement that they signed in 19, 97 um, on d different systems uh, and they're undermining that and they're t they're basically destroying the independence the autonomy in Hong Kong and we have to do everything we can to help them we have to basically indicate that uh, it's not just the United States standing with Taiwan that they are they're basically uh, we're you know we're impressed by the way they have functioned during this crisis they built a strong democracy they really represent the idea that freedom and democracy are not Western, but that they, you know, they can take hold in an Asian and Confucian culture, uh, and that they're one of the greatest, the strongest, and most important allies that we have. So we have to, uh, we we have to recover the capacity to affirm the values of freedom and democracy in this, and to understand that we're not just dealing with a health problem here, but we're dealing with a political problem. Thank you very much, Carl. It has been a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. Thank you.